to our second panel. I know this is going to be an exhausting day, but um, you know, where our bodies ha uh, will fail, our minds will be flourishing and expanding into new horizons. Um, this is a, a very interesting panel. I hope many of you have had a chance to read um, the, the papers, not only myself, uh, um, but they're, they're very wonderful. Um, I, I took lots of notes, um, and I, I think, you know, one of the, uh, I think this, this panel is actually central um, to, to the business of this um, conference because it really speaks to um, the, 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 the engagement, the intellectual, you know, the, the, the fiqh tradition obviously is the queen of the Islamic sciences in many respects. Um, and this demonstrates the, the, the firm rooting and um, uh, participation, not only participation, but contributions to wider networks of fiqh scholarship um, uh, anchored in Africa, but, but extending elsewhere. Um, so this, this panel is, is titled um, Courts, Colonialism, and Islamic Law in Africa. It is made up of Eddie uh, ter Terim? Terim. Terim, okay. Uh, who's an associate professor, Rhodes College, uh, and I understand is a graduate of, of, of this fine institution. Ismail uh, Warshait, uh, the research fellow um, at Centre National Research Scientifique yeah. uh, in, in Paris. Sarah Al-Tantawi, um, who is coming from Evergreen, Evergreen State College, assistant professor in comparative religion, uh, and Matthew Steele, um, who is a, um, all of you know, and we continue to thank him for his efforts, but he's also a PhD student here, uh, and he's uh, at, at Harvard. So um, I, I probably won't introduce everybody in between as, as much, unless you um, need me to, so we can kind of go a little bit faster. So um, Eddie, you're first, yep. and I will be reminding you via... Um, I would like to thank Osman and Matthew for this fantastic um, opportunity. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so my paper, I named it uh, Redefining Islamic Orthodoxy, <clears throat> Fatwas and Anxieties of Moroccan Modernity. In 1910, at the height of a period of major crisis and change in Morocco, as fears about a full-scale French military occupation threatened the country with social disorder and anarchy, Al-Mahdi Al-Wazani, a prominent Moroccan jurist, published a massive 11-volume compilation of Maliki fatwas and named it Al-Mi'yar Al-Jadid, the new standard measure or the new Mi'yar. In this presentation, I explore the specific nature and meaning of the material assembled in the new Mi'yar, focusing on an analysis of one fatwa, a microexample, that highlights the method and consciousness of Al-Wazani's entire collection. My argument is twofold. First, in composing the new Mi'yar, Al-Wazani reacted to or against Islamic ideas of revival and reform that encouraged a radical critique of Maliki legal tradition of fiqh, Al-Wazani's new Mi'yar intended to restore and reinforce the preeminent authority of the Maliki legal tradition by composing a new Maliki orthodoxy. Second, in the new Mi'yar, Al-Wazani both 
challenged and accommodated the changes of his time. His goal was to infuse Maliki thought with meaning relevant to his changed world. Thus, a critical concern of El Wazani in his new Maria was to establish a discourse that consciously preserved long-standing Maliki doctrine and knowledge as the substance of a contemporary ethical Muslim life. In the process, Al-Wazani actively transformed the contents and forms of Maliki scholarship. Between the mid-19th century and the beginning of French colonial rule in 1912, Moroccan state and society underwent far-reaching changes that represented an accelerated passage to modernity. During this period, concerns regarding European hegemony, the corresponding weakness of Islam, and dissatisfaction with the state of politics and religion emerged as central issues for many religious thinkers. These new historical conditions encouraged a special preoccupation with Islamic law and informed conversations about the Maliki legal tradition, its content and nature. Confronting a radically changed world, Moroccan ulama took issue with the tradition in which they were grounded, contemplating reasons for the unfolding Islamic degeneration and seeking solutions relevant to the dilemmas of their time. Leading Moroccan jurists offered a radical critique of Maliki jurisprudence and vigorously insisted that reform, islah, and tajdid, renewal of religion, was necessary for the revival of the Moroccan Muslim community. By the latter part of the 19th century, Maliki fiqh had come to be viewed by many of the learned religious elite as disorganized, difficult to access, and generally unsuited for the times. Many Moroccan religious scholars identified fiqh manuals as rigid and dogmatic, representing extreme academic intellectualism and legal reasoning that had no relevance for the modern world. Prominent jurists identified the practice of ifta, or the process involved in issuing fatwas by, by muftis, as particularly problematic. Some jurists held that ifta, the jurist's most important task, suffered from decline and stagnation. They argued that poorly trained and unqualified jurists incapable of practicing ijtihad, issued fatwas that resulted in many faulty and misguided legal opinions. Distinguished jurists contended that contemporary muftis based their fatwas on taqlid, without knowledge of the argumentation in the Quran and the Sunnah or in the foundational Maliki manuals. A new discourse of Islamic reform and regeneration emerged out of the modern transformation of Moroccan society and polity in the latter part of the 19th century. Al-Mahdi al-Wazani was concerned with the potent critique of Maliki scholarship, the dissatisfaction with the religious leadership, and the reform ideas that emerged in late 19th century Morocco. In 1902, he started writing his monumental Maliki fatwa compilation. It is my contention that in compiling the new Ma'yar, Al-Wazani reacted to or against these Islamic reformist ideas, which challenged not only the special position and authority of the Maliki legal tradition, but also his own authoritative position within the existing legal system. 
For El Wazani, nothing less was at stake than the stability of the legal system and the preservation of his interpretative community. In response, his new Ma'ayar was an attempt to defend and restore an interpretation of Islam that reinforced the authority of Maliki Fiqh. In an effort to investigate the nature and meaning of the material assembled in the new Ma'ayar, this essay considers Al-Wazani's juristic interpretation and argumentation. Specifically, I examine his discursive style and orientation in a case that addresses a socio-legal domain, food, beverages, and patterns of consumption that was directly linked to the transformations that characterized the late 19th and early 20th centuries and the concrete anxieties they generated. I'm interested in this fatwa as an illustration of the agenda and temperament of the new Ma'ayar. I situate my inquiry in the wider context of change that occurred in the period under discussion, the expansion of the import of manufactured goods from Europe, and changes in Moroccan consumption and taste. The commercial treaty concluded between Great Britain and Morocco in 1856 secured the integration of Morocco into the capitalist world economy on terms favorable to European economies. The treaty that lowered customs duties on European imports altered the Moroccan economy in significant and unprecedented ways. One of the results of the Anglo-Moroccan treaty that had a direct impact on the pre-colonial Moroccan economy was the opening of Moroccan market to cheaply manufactured European products and the steady erosion of domestic artisanry. However, the high commercial competition and changing economic conditions did not bring hardship for all Moroccans. The last quarter of the 19th century witnessed the development of a new social class of merchant elite that depended for its wealth on trade with Europe. In the commercial expansion that came after 1860, the balance of trade shifted in Europe's favor. Moroccan imports sharply increased at the same time that Moroccan exports were declining. The last quarter of the 19th century witnessed a decrease in European demand for the major products in Morocco's trade. At the same time, European commercial expansion into Morocco greatly increased. By 1870, imported tea, sugar, cotton fabric, candles, oil, matches, glassware, pottery, and tableware spread throughout the country, spurred by falling prices due to cheaper production and transportation costs. The diffusion of new items imported from Europe certainly countered the interests of artisans, craftsmen, and merchants who suffered from competition with European goods and prices. Moreover, these changes were regarded by some Moroccan ulama among the causes of the weakness of Islam. Opposition and resistance by the population found expression in social unrest and outbursts of xenophobic feelings and anti-European protests. In the last quarter of the 19th century, rumors circulated that European sugar was refined with the aid of pig's blood, and fatwas against imported sugar were issued in Fez. These rumors and fatwas, which attest to Moroccan anxieties over the power of Europe and the weakness of Islam, gave rise to the text assembled and arranged by al-Wazani, 
which forms the subject of this essay. The text comprises five independent legal discussions, and its special issue, its special value, lies in its juridical content as well as in the creative consciousness of its author editor. The locus of Al-Wazani's composition is a lengthy treatise written by a prominent Moroccan jurist in the first half of the 19th century, sanctioning the consumption of foreign sugar. Next to it, Al-Wazani carefully juxtaposed four separate discussions. Three of them were written by Al-Wazani himself that authorized the consumption of three beverages, tea, a strong intoxicating drink made of fruits called ma'el haya, and coffee. Al-Wazani bolsters his legal opinions by expanding upon the argument made by the earlier jurist in transforming the multiple literary elements into a single integral composition, Al-Wazani fashioned a complex dialogue between the world he occupied on the one hand and an age-old legal tradition on the other. It is this feature of the new Ma'yar that restores Maliki thought and knowledge as a living tradition. The last quarter of the 19th century was not the first time that rumors addressing the issue of imported sugar had circulated in Morocco. At the beginning of the 19th century, the issue was as explosive as it was during El Wazani's times. The principal text at the center of El Wazani's new composition is a long, detailed, and complex treatise written in response to rumors circulated in Morocco about the impurity and pollution of imported sugar in the first half of the 19th century. The treatise was written by Muhammad al-Arabi al-Zarhuni, a Maliki jurist who had a distinguished career. The treatise takes the form of an extended fatwa and contains a skillfully crafted legal thesis involving sophisticated argumentation. In it, al-Zarhuni assembled material from diverse sources and many generations and demonstrated his extensive knowledge of Maliki law and the science of this agreement. It was addressed specifically to professional jurists familiar with the method of legal reasoning, the founding doctrines of the Maliki school, and the opinions of the companions, the followers, and jurists who came after them. Al-Zarhuni rejects the rumor as an ignorant and unfounded opinion that leads to, the pre to preoccupations with unsound banalities. His discussion provides unequivocal doctrinal support for his claim that sugar manufactured in Europe is permissible. His juristic opinion adheres to established Maliki doctrine, cites earlier legal precedents, and relates opinions issued by Maliki jurists as specific support for his opinion. Al-Mahdi al-Wazani was a dynamic and creative compiler of Maliki wisdom. As the author editor of a multi-volume compilation of fatwas, he treated each text he included in it as an occasion to fashion a new composition. Indeed, the creative act of authoring the, the compilation also involved the study of different works, gathering, assembling, and arranging the selected material in new constructions. 
In the compilation and arrangement of the material, Al-Wazani highlights a complex dialogue between the particular historical concerns and practices of his time on the one hand, an authoritative corpus, long-standing arguments and methods of disputation pivotal within Maliki tradition on the other. It is this feature of the new Ma'ayar that in my view reflects Al-Wazani's originality and intricate understanding of Maliki tradition as a dynamic one. In deliberately creating new legal constructions, Al-Wazani attempted to recover and restore Maliki thought as essential for the survival of Moroccan society under new, modern conditions. This approach is particularly discernible in the present text. As Al-Wazani was copying Al-Zarhouni's treatise into what would become the new Ma'ayar, he was not satisfied merely with recording his predecessor's manuscript. To the treatise, Al-Wazani attached four independent texts in a carefully designed arrangement. This intervention included one short poem written by Al-Zarhouni and three separate chapters written by Al-Wazani. The editorial hand of Al-Wazani that binds the four texts together points to the author's creativity and the innovative nature of his enterprise. The four texts treat the permissibility of three beverages, tea, ma'al haya, and coffee. The primary object of Al-Wazani's new composition is to offer a series of legal cases in which juridical arguments and legal precedents permit the consumption of these drinks. As I have shown, the growing consumption of tea, alcohol, and coffee in the late 19th century did not always meet with the approval of Moroccan authorities and religious scholars. In fashioning a new composition, I suggest that Al-Wazani not only rearranged al zawuni's treatise into a new order by making it part of mosaic, but connected it with other critical issues that were relevant in Al-Wazani's own time. Thus, the new composition does not simply preserve El Zarhouni's sophisticated legal opinion that deems European manufactured sugar permissible. Rather, it consciously locates El Zarhouni's treaties in a new historical context, thereby infusing it with contemporary relevance, and at the same time offers El Wazani's legal opinions that authorize the consumption of the three beverages, the necessary Islamic discursive authority. Consequently, enabling Al-Wazani to redefine a Maliki discourse that accommodates structural and behavioral changes dictated by Moroccan modernity. This essay puts the act of compiling and editing at the center of the writing of the new Ma'ayar. Al-Mahdi Al-Wazani did not write all the compositions himself, but he is the author, editor, of the new Ma'ayar. He is the individual singly responsible for the overall composition. And since I'm after the work's historical meaning and cultural role, questions pertaining to the work's editorial conception, the selection of its components, and the manner of their treatment are key historical questions. The present composition epitomizes the creative effort of the author-editor. The acts of selection, juxtaposition, and recombination of discrete texts in new contexts and combinations are powerful instruments 
for innovation. I have argued that the prominent characteristic of the new Ma'ayar is that it engages historical change from within Maliki legal doctrine and discursive tradition, zealously preserving and reinforcing the Maliki legal tradition. It carries forward the endeavor to create new, yet old, constructions. In other words, it engages modern needs and pressures that emerged in the context of colonial encroachment through the age-old voices of tradition. Al-Wazani's dual loyalty is therein exposed. On the one hand, he wants to address new needs linked to the contemporary context. On the other, he cannot divorce himself from the Maliki legal tradition. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Tareem, on very useful exposition of the continued agility of classically trained scholars that are presumed to have been outflanked mm -hmm. by the process of reformism and modernity. And you really do the work of uh, going back to look at these texts that so few people have done. But what is mal ma hayat? Oh, um, is it actually alcohol? Um, yes, there is mm. alcohol in this uh, mm. in this drink. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> All right, I have uh, further questions for you yeah. later. Um, <laughs> next is Ismail Warashad, uh, um, who will be giving a talk on entitled "The West African Approach: A West African Approach to Islamic Law, Saharan Legal Writing in Post-Classical Malikism." Very interesting paper as well. We look forward to hearing more about it. Thanks. Um, thanks a lot for the kind invitation. I'm very happy to be here to present some elements of my, of my research on Islamic uh, legal history in the Sahara, in the Western Sahara, that is southern Algeria, Mauritania, Mali, and Niger. So it's my first conference here in the US, so I'm <laughs> a bit excited. So thanks a lot <laughs> for your invitation. In one of his legal opinion, Muhammad bin Abdurrahman Atinilani, 18th century Muslim scholar from the oasis of Tuat in present-day Algeria, compares the work of Qadis and Muftis in his native region with the legal praxis in Fez. I quote, there is no difference in the nature of legal decisions issued in our country and those issued in Fez. The principles of the Sharia do not vary when countries change and differences between them become apparent. This is because the message of our prophet is of universal validity directed to all of humanity and to all places in the world. Atinilani's fatwa emphasizes the claim of Islamic law to be universal and furthermore insists on a fundamental equality between all Muslims with regard to their duties and rights. His conception of what I would call an Islamic legal space is nonetheless a hierarchical one. The Mufti implicitly distinguished between a center and a periphery. His fatwa refers to the city of Fez as a natural environment for the application of Sharia religious and legal norms. Like many of his contemporaries, Atinilani identifies Islamic cultural and normative models as a being a part of urban civilization, Hadara. However, he maintains that these models are transferable to any geographical and social context since they emanate from a divine revelation. A few decades later, another Saharan jurist, Muhammad al-Mami, 
a nomad from the Tiriz region in present-day northern Mauritania, provides a fairly different account on the relationship between Islamic legal scholarship as a part of urban civilization and the Bedouin way of life, Bedawa, to speak in Khaldunian terms. In his book of the desert, Kitab al-Bedia, he writes, it appeared to us scholars that there are a lot of questions peculiar to the inhabitants of the desert on which no one has made authoritative statements and on which no writings exist. This is because legal literature originates from cities. However, urban people in general speak on their own, of their own affairs or at most on questions they have in common with us. They are silent about topics proper to the people of the desert. This is either because they cannot imagine these questions within their living conditions or because of the prohibition on them to speak about custom or that is not the custom of their region. But their silence is also due to the fact that they have no interest in our affairs, since urban civilization is obligatory for them and nomadism considered as something reprehensible. It was both the absence of authoritative statements dealing with specific concerns of Saharan nomadic people and an ambition to contribute to the juristic debate of his time that seemed to have motivated Al-Mami to write one of the most impressive work of Islamic legal thought in pre-modern West Africa. In his book, which has only recently been edited, Al-Mami addresses, on the one hand, several core institutional problems about the implementation of the Sharia in the context of Mauritanian society. On the other, he engages in a substantial discussion of one of the main epistemological issues within Islamic jurisprudence during the post-classical period, namely the relationship between independent legal reasoning, ishtihad, and commitment to established school doctrine, taqlid. It is precisely al-Mami's Saharan background which allows him to connect the two themes, since many legal cases and questions pertaining to the life in the desert have not received appropriate treatment in the urban-shaped literature of the Maliki school, local jurists in their functions as muftis and qadis were forced to find their own answers. They thus engaged in a form of legal positivism for which Al-Mami intended to construct a, doctrin a doctrinal framework centered around what Sherman Jackson has called the ishtihad of the Muqali Juris Council, that is, the procedure of extrapolation from authoritative school text, taqrij, and the pondering of legal opinion, tarjih. In the case of this process of creative appropriation and adaptation of Maliki law eventually led to the constitution of a vernacular tradition of legal thought, leaving us with a rich, with a rich literary heritage. So, for example, fatwa collections like this one from, from the Tuat region, Another one from Tuat region, commentaries and doctrinal treatises. Recent research has demonstrated the relevance of this literature as a source for the social and cultural history of the region. Here I'm referring to the work of Gillen Leiden or Bruce Hall, for example. But I think there's more to it. The local, when discussing local issues, the intention of jurists is not so much to preserve the cultural memory of their communities as to think of these issues as legal problems. In other words, the local is examined by the means of normative models and concepts which have been derived from the authoritative literature of fiqh and the Maliki school in particular. Although most of these works, like Nawaz al-Ibn or, or others, must be considered as being external, 
since they have been uh, composed in Andalusia in the Middle, e Middle Ages, for example. And relating to past times, their use in, is inevitably embedded in local context. Textual comprehension and interpretation is produced, so to say, on the spot. In this respect, the sophisticated debates concerning the local application of legal norms and procedures are tantamount to the gradual formation of a, of a re regional tradition of legal reasoning that situates itself in the wider context of post-classical Malikism. In this paper, I will explore some aspects of this tradition by focusing on the question how Saharan jurists have developed doctrinal solutions to authorize legal practices in the absence of a legitimate Islamic ruler, a imam. I first present the institutional model elaborated by the scholars of Tuat in the 18th, 18th and early 19th centuries. Then I turn to the conception of political legitimacy to be found in Al-Mami's Kitab al-Badiya. The creation of legal institution necessarily entails claims of legitimacy and sovereignty. In the case of Islam, the existence of Qadi courts guarantees the application of sacred law in society and thereby not only confers legitimacy to its political and legal institutions, but also constitutes the main criterion to integration within the Dar al-Islam. It should be remembered that according to classical Muslim political thought, the implementation of God's law, Iqamat al-Shar, through the appointment and supervisions of judges are among the most prominent duties of the Imam. But then a question arises, what about those regions that are situated outside the Islamic State or at the margin, yet inhabited by Muslim populations practicing their religion? Should they invariably be assigned to the status, status of communities that are deprived of the foundational, foundational attachment to an imam, what is called Bilad Seiba? Or can such political and legal legitimacy also exist without the patronage of the imam? In the political context of the early modern Sahara, such debates were understandably of utmost importance and led to the development of a constitutional doctrine that tried to counterbalance the absence of direct administrative state control by endorsing the power of local community institutions in legal and political matters. In the case of the Oasis of Tuat, local jurists adopted a legal solution, developed, developed developed by medieval Maliki authorities just uh, such as Abu Imran al-Fasi, already heard about him this morning, which considers the community of the faithful, Jama'at al-Muslimin, to be the legitimate representative of the Imam in his absence. The abstract wording should not mislead us. The expression Jama'at al-Muslimin refers to the most important political institutions in rural North Africa, namely the council of notables of a given community, may it be a village or a nomadic group. The power granted to the jama'a included the appointment of judges, but since Qadi court courts did not exist in all parts of the region, Tuwaji jurists also conceded the jama'a council to act in such cases as their substitute in all administrative matters, like the management of Awqaf properties, for example. The strong support given to the Jama'a reflects an enduring political alliance between saintly families, Marabtin, to which most scholars belonged, and secular notable families, 
mainly the influence Shurfa lineages who were heavily engaged in caravan trade between Morocco and the Niger Bend. The consequence of this alliance were twofold. On the one hand, religious and legal legitimacy was conferred to, through the oligarchic order which prevailed in most oasis regions. On the other hand, by recognizing customary institutions such as the Jama'a, Muslim scholars could recline upon them in legal procedures. Let us now turn to Muhammad al-Mami's Kitab al-Badiyah. Abdul Wadud Walchir and Rahal Mubrik, American scholar, have already highlight, highlighted the singularity of the work within the wider context of Muslim scholarship in pre-modern Western Africa. As mentioned above, its author was a 19th century nomadic scholar, Sufi, and saint who spent most of his life in the region of Therese in modern Mauritania. Like many other Saharan scholars, Muhammad al-Mami received his initial training from his close relatives, but acquired most of his erudition as an autodidact through the collection and reading of books. What is more important for our purpose here is the fact that he was a prolific writer acclaimed both for his legal works and his poetry, some of which is composed in the local Hassaniya dialect. It should be stressed that his talents as a poet also served his work as a jurist, since many of his poems deal with legal questions. Furthermore, he versified the standard manual of the Maliki school in his time, the Muhtasar Khalil, which was widely read in the region. The Kitab al-Badiya, the Book of the Desert, is undoubtedly al-Mami's opus magnum. In his introduction, the author qualifies it as a majmur, a compilation since it contains a series of letters concerning the local application of Shar'i norms. Like the scholars from Tuat, al-Mami takes the absence of a legitimate Islamic ruler as the starting point for his analysis. According to him, the Western Sahara, being inhabited by nomadic people, constitutes a land in between, Bilad al-Fitra, a sort of no man's land situated between the Kingdom of Morocco and Islamic State and the Islamic States in the Sahel. By this, Al-Mami refers both to a geographical space and a legal category. Its characteristics are defined with regard to the spatial and political distance separating the Badia, the desert, from urban centers. Rural dwellers who live close to cities have to submit to the decisions of urban legal institutions since these can still be applied. In those areas, however, which are not attained by such decisions or nor are governed by a ruler, or here quote, the implementation of Shari norms is subjected to peculiar conditions which El-Mami purports to expose, particularly with regard to uh, penal law. Just consider the following passages. If someone from the inhabitants of these areas seizes power, obedience to him is mandatory, even if he's a slave. As for those areas where no such self-proclaimed ruler exists, their inhabitants are the people of the intermediate land situated between the two imamic states. Imamic states. Therefore, the application of Quranish punishments, iqamat al is dependent on the emergence of such a ruler. If there is no notable council which is powerful enough to prevent disorder, fitna, like the Ahl Busayba or the people of Fez. In what concerns those areas ruled by a leader such as Ahmed Lubbu, the Al-Mami Abu Bakr, or by a notable council powerful enough to prevent disorder, 
their legal decisions are to be regarded as identical to those issued by an imam, notwithstanding if their inhabitants are nomads or sedentary people. And I personally saw the Al-Mami Abu Bakr implementing the Quranic punishments. The quotation shows that the Jama'a doctrine is embedded in a much more complex vision of political power as the basis of legal or any legal order. It includes general considerations about the nature of the social relations within nomad societies, but also reflections on the actual circumstances in which Muhammad al-Mami writes. Both elements, the social structure and its historical manifestation, are discussed simultaneously in order to determine the possibilities of the creation of an Islamic rule of law on the local level. On the one hand, Muhammad al-Magmi recognizes the decentralized nature of political authority in Saharan societies, where community decisions regularly encountered the resistance of powerful individuals pursuing their own interests. Their own interests. The condition imposed on the jama'a to be powerful enough to prevent disorder indeed perfectly resumes this dilemma. On the other hand, al-Mami resigns himself to the right of the strongest, which in his view is at the origin of the emergence of personal power. By this, or, by this, or author clearly alludes to the figure of the emir that appeared within the Western Saharan warrior tribes, Hassan, since the end of the 17th century. Confronted with this new political configuration, al-Mami adopts a pragmatic approach. Although the seizure of power by the leaders of the Hassan has no legal foundation, it's, it must be accepted as a social fact that might provide public order and moreover could serve as an institutional basis for the application of Quranic punishments. I would argue that al-Mami's emphasis on the hudud in this context must be understood, also understood in a metaphorical way as a generic symbol for the rule of law. Such a position was of course fairly consensual among 18th and 19th century Saharan scholars. Some like Sheikh Bayl Kunti even extended it later to French colonial rule. However, al-Mami adds another layer to this local version of the classical argument in Sunni Ford, which, which holds the prevention of public order against fitna as the most important objective of political authority. But presenting the movements of the contemporary jihad leaders as a full-fledged full -fledged alternative to the rule of the imam reminds us the persisting and somehow utopian aspirations among Saharan scholars towards the construction of a truly Islamic polity. And I think his assertion, assertion concerning his personal encounter with the al-Mami Abu Bakr seems highly significant in this regard, since it reflects the great appeal to the jihad in Fototoro to literate Muslim circles in the area. I, I will conclude just two. Okay. So the Kitab al-Babiya, as well as the legal um, com, um, co collections from Tuat, reflect both the sophisticated nature of legal debates between Saharan scholars and their embeddedness in local legal practices. The use of biographical references was intended to foster a creative process in which concrete juridical problems were resolved within the framework of the Maliki school. Especially in the case of al-Mami, this process of active appropriation led, however, to the emergence of something quite new, a doctrine of Islamic legal order in nomad context, which, as far as I know, has no equivalent in other parts of the Maliki world. As such, it forcefully illustrates the, rel the relevance of Saharan legal literature, literature for research on the history in, of Islam in pre-modern North and West Africa. Thank you.
Very well done, Professor, for your first American presentation. Um, uh, thank you for reminding us, um, uh, you know, uh, certainly this idea of repositioning uh, Islamic legal authority from the emir to the jama'ah, I think, has far-reaching implications. And essentially, you've given us a theoretical apparatus to read the wide applicability of Islamic law throughout uh, Muslim Africa, uh, even in places where we don't have courts and madrasas and other urban institutions. So I think your work is uh, very important. Um, so moving now to a subject that has sort of been in the background and we're moving further south as we go, um, namely colonialism. We have a, a, a presentation by Professor Sarah Al-Tantawi on the influence, entitled The Influence of Northern Nigeria's Encounter with European Colonialism on the Development of Islamic Law. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I just want to thank uh, Professor Khan and uh, Matthew very much for, for everything. I'm very, very delighted to be here. This is the first time I've been back to Harvard since I graduated. So, um, and it's been wonderful. So thank you so much. Um, I actually changed the title of the talk. And I, um, what this presentation really is, is, is really a kind of side street of a side street of my overall um, book project, which it looks at the re-implementation of full Islamic Sharia penal legal codes in 12 northern states starting in 1999. And the questions that I was asking um, were, what is the symbolic value of Islamic law, or, or what is called colloquially Sharia, for the people who went out into the streets in the hundreds of thousands to demand its re-implementation? what is it that people think um, Sharia and Islamic law actually symbolizes? Um, at the same time, I was, and I was looking at, I am, I say was because the book is finished, but I, I um, was looking at this project through the lens of a particular case, that of Amina Lawal, a peasant woman from Katsina State, northern Nigeria, who two years after this process of re-implementing Islamic law in 1999, so in 2001, she was sentenced to death by stoning uh, for committing zina or illegal sexual activity, and she was later acquitted in an Islamic court. So while I was, on one hand, through ethnographic fieldwork in northern Nigeria, trying to understand why people, um, or why people wanted Islamic law and what they felt Islamic law was and symbolized, I was also trying to understand at the more theoretical level how the stoning punishment entered the Islamic tradition, what the legal history is of the punishment, how it has changed over time, and how it is implemented. So um, in order to do the latter, you know, this requires studying Islamic law. And one cannot do that in a Western context without coming across the work of Joseph Schacht. And so imagine my surprise to um, having engaged Schacht, you know, among other um, scholars in the context of understanding Islamic law, to learn that Schacht was actually employed by the British crown um, <clears throat> to go to northern Nigeria and write a report about the, uh, the state of Islamic law there for the express purposes of the crown. So this got me thinking, this got me, that this intersection you know, between really legal anthropology and, 
uh, can we say, theoretical Islamic law, or um, got me thinking about that intersection. So I'm, I'm going to offer a couple of reflections about that here. And as I said, it's really a side note of a side note of the overall project. Um, and so I'd be very, very curious about your feedback. So the new title of the paper is Subsuming Islamic Law, British Colonial Authorities' Approach to Native Islamic Legal Authority in House of Land. So in spite of a postmodern consensus that objective truths are subordinate to a subjective lens through which one apprehends that truth, the temptation to identify a core, true, or orthodox Islamic religious law has rarely subsided <clears throat> among many Muslims and scholars of Islam. The tension between those invested in accounting for what a, quote, objective account of what God's law is and those who reject unilateral answers to this question is perennial. In the case of northern Nigeria, and which of course was Hausaland before 1960s, colonial period, the late 19th century to 1960, contesting the true, na the true nature of Islamic law aided British attempts to appropriate and control Islamic law in that region. By arguing that British interpretations of Islamic law in Hausaland conform to aspects of Islamic legal orthodoxy, better than the inhabitants of Hausaland themselves, which is an argument that Schacht made, colonial authorities were able to appropriate Islamic law and legal scholars with greater efficiency. As Muhammad Sani Omar argues in 2006, British colonial policies toward Islam are best understood as a regime of appropriation, containment, and surveillance. The British imposed changes over time that posed challenges to Muslims, buttressed by a disparity between the colonizer and the colonized, the disparity, of course, being military and economic. British colonial authorities who approached Islamic law outside a lived Muslim context made claims to understand that law better and then used their military and political superiority to suppress further debate or resistance to that stance. I'll give a brief history of the Sokoto Caliphate and British colonialism in Hausaland. In 1903, British canons on Kano put an end to the Sokoto Caliphate, which was reigned from 1909 to 1903, over Hausaland in what is today northern Nigeria. Today, the caliphate survives symbolically with emirs holding ceremonial court, wearing fineries of bright colors and lace every Friday at still upkept palaces, or they receive visitors who hand them notes of suggestion and complaint. When I conducted field work for my book in 2010, I witnessed many such processions, including the grandest one in Sokoto State, the capital of the empire. The Sokoto Caliphate continues to enjoy deep symbolic legitimacy in northern Nigeria, and I argue elsewhere makes up a key part of what I think of as a Sunaic paradigm um, that explains why northern Nigerians clamored onto the streets to demand full Sharia penal law starting in 1999. The Sunaic paradigm is made up of starting with the shallowest level of, and I'm not going to get into it, but I'll just tell you what it is, the existential concerns of the present, which then leads people to want a return of the Sokoto Caliphate, which then symbolically symbolizes the classical period of Islam under the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions. In 1950, Joseph Schacht was sent to northern Nigeria under the auspices of the British crown, to report on the state of Islamic law there. Um, in, in March, on March 17, 1824, British Captain Hugh Clapperton was received by the Sultan of Sokoto, Mohammed Bello, who died in 1837, marking the beginning of the British presence in northern Nigeria. 
From about the 1860s onward, European powers, particularly the French, Germans, and British, vied for supremacy in West Africa. Palm oil, abundant in today's northern Nigeria, was imported to British industry. The Royal Niger Charter was formed in 1886 by George Taubman Goldie, which merged British trade interests, including palm oil. Goldie would go on to pressure the British to militarily invade the northern region at the start of the 20th century, blurring the line between imperialism and trade. British vice-regent of the uh, colonial authority, Frederick Lugard, uh, wanted the basis of colonial rule to be unambiguous military superiority. On March 20th, 1903, in his first public address in Sokoto, Lugard nullified all existing treaties with Sokoto and, quote, claimed right of conquest as the basis of British colonial rule. Violence and military superiority would continue to buttress the legitimacy of the British. In March 1906, for example, dozens were executed for rebelling against British authorities in the town of Satiro. Um, and basically, uh, that, that kind of minor massacre, if you will, uh, made a tremendous impression. And um, according to the uh, vice regent at the time, this increased British prestige um, much more than before. Omar writes of a, quote, double paradox with respect to British military might. The British never had enough personnel to completely replace the Sokoto Caliphate leadership. In the beginning of British colonial rule, less than 100 personnel were on hand to administer a territory of 276,034 square miles and a population of 8.7 million. Maintaining full control, therefore, would require forms of power that extended beyond military power. For this reason, the British set upon modifying the institutions of the caliphate, including the Sharia courts and Quranic schools. The double paradox is that the British could not afford to rely on military power alone, and so had to compromise with existing structures, while for the Muslims' part, all military attempts against the British had led to defeat. Therefore, cooperating with the British was the only way for Muslims to retain power. At the same time, the only incentive for Muslims to cooperate with the British was in the final analysis that same military superiority. How did British colonial authorities utilize the power of the labor of Islamic legal specialists to buttress their rule? There is often a conceptual struggle um, among us, right, between textual Islamic legal studies and lived Islamic legal studies or legal anthropology. Opportunities are rare to encounter and analyze a figure that acts prominently in both worlds. In the case of today's Northern Nigeria and the colonial, we have one such figure, as I've mentioned, in Joseph Schatz, who's alive from 1902 to 1969, the West's most prominent scholar of Islamic law of the 20th century. The author of such classics of the field of Islamic legal studies, such as The Origins of Mohammedan Jurisprudence, 1950, and Introduction to Islamic Law, 1964, books that trace the geographic origins of Islamic law, fixed development, and traces its core jurisprudential foundations, respectively. A lesser known fact of Shah's career is that he was sent by the British colonial office to northern Nigeria between February and April of 1950 to report on the position of, quote, Mohammedan law for Her Majesty the Queen. Hence, a scholar renowned for his attempts to understand Islamic jurisprudence's textual foundations was sent to Hausaland to assess how that people's legal behavior matched up to an Islamic legal ideal for the express purpose of aiding the British colonial effort. 
Shach's journey to northern Nigeria is part and parcel of what contemporary northern Nigerian scholars such as Awalu Yadudu call legal warfare against Islamic law, whereby a colonial agenda to bring, to bring natives in alignment with true Islamic law is used as a cover to reduce the sovereignty of Islamic law and cause its seat of authority to change hand from natives to colonial authorities. Now, I know that sounds harsh, <laughs> but um, actually, Schacht himself uh, very much claims that stance, and it wasn't controversial at the time. So um, I guess I have no problem stating it this way, since so does he. Schacht reflected on his travels to Hausaland during lectures given in 1957 at the University of Madrid and at the Sorbonne in Paris. The dynamics of Schacht's speech and its audience, its audience, European academics, lends support to the idea that his expedition constitutes this legal warfare. A knowledge is produced about Hausaland and its Muslims, but those self-same natives are not co-creators of that knowledge. The Hausa are also not in a position to produce knowledge about Europeans that would have anything near the influence as the inverse situation. Okay, a quick legacy of the Islamic Penal Code in Nigeria, 1958 to 1999. Northern Nigerian scholars placed the death knell for traditional Islamic law in the 1958 um, panel known as the Ranat Panel. The Chief Justice of the Sudan was the chairman of the panel, and the members were composed of retired judge of Pakistan's Supreme Court, J.N.D. Anderson of the United Kingdom School of, African, uh, School of Oriental African Arab Studies, and Nigerian legal experts, Sir Kashim Ibrahim, Al-Kali Musa Bida, and Mr. Peter Achemigo. This combined group of British and Nigerian legal scholars visited the Sudan to observe how a nation with similar religious mix to Nigeria applied Islamic law alongside the English criminal code. In the process, colonial authorities argued that this adoption was necessary. Okay. Skip some things. Okay, so I'm going to go back to Schacht. So um, here's a little bit of Schacht's critique of the Sokoto Caliphate. Schacht writes that little has been known so far of the part played by their religion in the life of the most numerous group of Muslims in the neighborhood of West Africa, the Muslims of northern Nigeria. He writes, the most important aspect is the, con is the conquest of the greater part of the region by the Fulanis under Uthman Danfodio at the beginning of the 19th century. This led to the superimposition by the new ruling class of a particularly strict and puritanical form of Islam to the less uncompromising standards of an easygoing and not yet completely Islamicized population, not to mention straightforward pagans. The contrast between extreme strictness on one side and considerable laxity on the other forms indeed a characteristic feature of Islam in northern Nigeria today. In order to justify their jihad, Uthman Danfodio and his adherents pretended that most of their neighbors, nominally Muslims, were not only unbelievers, but apostates from Islam." End quote. Shah describes the Sokoto Caliphate leaders of, as having superimposed their version of Islam on a population that was easygoing, because by strong implication, they were not fully Islamicized. While there is certainly evidence to back Shah's claim, any upset about this superimposition is a matter best handled by the people subject to the new regime, and not the British colonial authorities claiming to act in their best interests. Moreover, the history of the reception of the Sokoto Caliphate, both in real time and after the Caliphate's fall, is far more nuanced and varied among local historians and lay people of the region than in Shah's description here. 
He portrays the jihad history as warlike and uncompromising and described the introduction of their iteration of Islam, which emphasizes Islamic law, as propagandizing. Um, <clears throat> Shah draws, draws a distinction between the outward success of the jihads with a presumably more authentic syncretism of paganism and lighter versions of Islam. He seeks to speak of the colonial encounter with Hausaland only indirectly. In a discussion of the relative rise of native courts, for example, Schacht writes, now the pagans whose leader incidentally was a Christian asked for the establishment of so-called native courts all over the district, which would have transformed the tribunal of the chief Qadi and his assessors into so-called mixed court. The district officer called a meeting in order to discuss the question with the interested parties, and the Qadi appeared grit with his ceremonial sword and made a statement in which he opposed all change. We have conquered you with the sword, he said to the pagans. That was his last word. And if it were not accepted, he, will, he would appeal to the district officer, the resident, the governor, and the British government. Now, because I'm running out of time, what I'm going to do is describe the last part of the paper, which is I look very specifically at the doctrine of Siyasa Sharaiya, um, namely um, the idea that that the ruling authority has uh, considerable discretion over Islamic legal rulings. And so Shah talks quite a bit about how the emirs during the Sokoto Caliphate did not make enough use of siyasa sharia. They did not make enough use of their own power. And so therefore, Islamic law, according to Shah, became overly what he called pure. Um, or overly adhering to the schools of law purely. And so one of his main um, innovations, and Muhammad Sani Omar writes about this quite a bit, um, is to really introduce the doctrine of siyasa sharia very elaborately um, and make the recommendation to the British colonial authorities that the key is to, is to uh, establish control and then use this doctrine of siyasa sharia to, um, to have, to basically have wide legal discretion. Um, and so the, the sort of latter half of the paper talks about ways in which the concept of siyasa sharia is used um, instrumentally to aid uh, British colonial power when necessary. And as I've, as I've been saying, it's kind of under the auspices of acting as an objective scholar of Islamic law. Um, so, just quickly in conclusion, the evidence I've presented here illuminates three main themes. First, both vice-regent for the British Crown, Lord Frederick Lugard, and Islamic legal scholar Joseph Schacht commenced their respective investigations of Islamic law in Hausaland by keenly deconstructing the personnel involved in the administration of Islamic law. Understanding who was in charge and how much legitimacy those in charge enjoyed among their constituencies was these men's first order of business, and this was in the order, this was in the service of Siyasa Sharaiya. This is significant because their stated aim was not to undertake an anthropological study of Islamic legal personnel, but rather to report on Islamic law itself as an intellectual construct and abstract legal system. Secondly, it was after such an investigation of personnel was undertaken that Schacht put forth theories and observations on how native authorities were deviating from Islamic law. Okay, I place Islamic law in quotes because Schacht's reading of proper or orthodox Islamic law shapeshifts as needed to match the needs of British colonial authority. Okay, I'm going to say, and then lastly, 
A very interesting instantiation of this self-serving attitude toward Islamic legal norms, covered briefly in this paper, but much more extensively in my other work, is that of had punishments, especially the stoning punishment. Um, I'm not going to tell you about it right now, but it's in the paper. So these points offer just a few ways in which European rhetorical claims towards scholarly objectivity with respect to Islamic law served as a cover for political and military agendas in colonial Hausaland. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Tantawi, for the very interesting presentation. You remind us of the formative place that Africa has played in the construction of colonial visions of, Isla of Islamic law, which were then applied everywhere around the world, um, and, and arguably have come to inform Muslims' own self-perception, as I think you allude to towards the end. Mm -hmm. And your intriguing reference to Shot um, really reminds us of the sort of complicated legacy of academia, really, and the production of knowledge, it reminds me of some documents that Professor Khan showed me from the Colonial Archive of Mervyn Hesket, who was uh, we, well known among us as well, actually was similarly employed uh, by the British government to spy, um, to go from Nigeria to spy on Sudanese students to see if they were um, being corrupted by various <laughs> ideologies. Um, so, uh, but we have to return to, and ask you further questions about um, agency, perhaps. All right, moving uh, to a more theoretical piece, perhaps. Um, uh, the, the, the formative role of the Mukhtasar Sidi Khalil and the Maliki fiqh practice in West Africa that all of the presentations in some way have been alluding to already. You've heard the name mentioned already. Uh, Matthew Steele will give a presentation, the Khalil in commentary, the making of legal literary uh, canon in West Africa. Great, thank you. Okay, well why don't I start while we try to figure out how to get the presentation going. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, great. <clears throat> I'd like to thank Osman for all the work that he's uh, put into convening this conference and for his wonderful mentorship throughout. And also to Zachary for chairing this panel and for the outstanding presentations of Eddie, Ismail, uh, and Sarah. I am, I think, the only graduate student on the panel, uh, so it's both a thrill and a bit terrifying to be include in the, included in the discussion. This is also one of those cases where the panel that I'm presenting also includes the academics that I'm most excited to hear discuss their work, so this is a neat confluence of interest, interests and coincidence. <clears throat> this paper developed out of experiences as a student in Mauritania several years ago. Deciding another iteration of studying Al-Kitab would do no one any good, least of all my winning sanity, I set off for Mauritania in hopes that a new set of books would jumpstart my studies in Arabic. Though the latter remains as obstinate now as then, I did find the curriculum apart from any that I've experienced. Beginning in a rural school, school of Islamic studies, Al-Kitab was traded for Lajadumiya, political essays for Qadr al-Nada, as medieval uh, grammar manuals took the place of contemporary literature. Yet the book of the students focused not on these short works of morphology and syntax, Mauritanian children master them quickly, but on what appeared to be a Byzantine set of rules restricting prayer, inheritance, marriage, and so on. Sensing my confusion with the difficult grammar passage weeks after having arrived, a friend suggested, you should really stop spending all of your time on Nahu. Khalil has everything that you need to know. Sadly, Khalil was not, as I hoped, a sheikh famous for unlocking the mysteries of medieval Arabic grammar to confused foreign students. <laughs> uh, he was an author, and a long dead one at that. His uh, his short 14th century abridgment of ritual law was the central book that students were expected to master in Mauritania. Unlike, sorry, we're trying to get that turned on, if you can help. 
<laughs> unlike, uh, unlike studying other medieval works, mastery implied not just memorizing Khalil's original text, it's mutton, a d difficult enough prospect even for famously eidetic Mor Mauritanian students, but instead making sense of the book's notoriously condensed prose, translating each riddle into a series of legal opinions, authors, references, and dissenting views. Um, let's just see if we can get this going. We're up. Okay, outstanding. Wonderful. Great. Um, and dissenting views. The book's brevity meant that the text itself was little help in unpacking its meaning. To compensate, scholars taught the book in lesson circles throughout the day, each drawing on the Khalil's centuries-long commentary history in and outside of Mauritania. Advanced students paired with younger ones as peer tutorials reinforced the Sheikh's lessons, and nightly review sessions tested students' retention of earlier material. For those with few distractions beyond the Rus and Hifiv, the, the process of learning the Khalil took uh, between three and five years to complete. This approach to the Khalil is undertaken in Mauritania more intensively than any other place that I'm aware of in the Islamic world. A central Mauritanian tribe was famous for repeatedly not allowing uh, its young men or young men in, in its school to wear pants until they'd memorized the Khalil. Among the country's most famous commentators of the book, Mohammed bin Salim al-Majlisi, died in uh, 1884, was said to prohibit students from graduating and returning to their homes until they had studied with him the book in its entirety. The narratives point to an idea of the text underscored in the student's advice to me several years earlier. The Khalil has, and seems to have had for many centuries, functioned as a type of social cultural currency in Mauritania in which maturity, piety, status, and not least of which scholarship was navigated. <clears throat> Great. A reading of biographical dictionaries throughout North Africa suggests that its resonance was not a Mauritanian phenomenon alone. In the introduction to his commentary in the book, Nasruddin Laqani, died 1551, described the Khalil's dominance over 16th century Maliki Cairo, writing, very famously, uh, we, are, <clears throat> we are the people of Khalil. If he errs, we err. A century later, West Africa's preeminent scholar-historian, Ahmed Baba, died 1627, similarly concluded that from east to west, people had devoted themselves to the Khalil to the extent that today in the Maghreb, from Marrakesh to Fez, uh, the people restrict themselves to his uh, Mukhtasar alone. They had, in another saying attributed to Baba, become Khalilis, not Malikis. Ibn Ma'mar, died 1839, observed the book's hold over legal reasoning had grown just as tight in 19th century Egypt, noting that, in actuality, later Malikis follow the Khalil. They pay no attention to anything that contradicts it. Even if they found an authoritative hadith from the Sahihain, they still wouldn't rely upon it if it contradicted the Khalil. The accounts point to a Khalil that, in little more than 100 years, threatened to overshadow the legal school it sought to explain. How it came to do so is worth noting. Relative to other works of the genre, the Khalil's condensed chapters are nearly incomprehensible without explanation by an advanced scholar. To meet the challenge, jurists wrote commentaries glossing the work, their mastery of the text frequently serving as a measuring stick for scholarly rigor. Schools made the manual required reading, uh, and teaching licenses for the book served as necessary credentials for practicing law. Even courts took the Khalil's text as proof of authoritative Maliki uh, precedent. By no later than the 16th century, the book had assumed such a dominant role in Maliki scholasticism that a career without mastery of the text was viewed with considerable suspicion. Its success was not usual. Though the, though the development of canonical texts, many of which dealt with law, was hardly a novel, a novel phenomenon, the degree to which the Khalil dominated talking about the law, to say nothing of its use in applying the law, was indeed exceptional. It was path-breaking, generative of not simply changes to legal precedent and literary genre, but of communities for whom their connection to the text served as a type of notional identity. 
Uh, great. <clears throat> Oddly, Western scholarship has ignored the book. The omission owes as much to the history of Islamic studies in the West as to an apathy for the text itself. The rational sciences, philosophy, theology, hadith, aqidah, and usul of fiqh have traditionally been privileged in monographs since the discipline's founding. A bias toward the intellectual production of the classical Islamic period runs throughout, reduce, reducing the Islamic world after the 13th century to a shoddy representation of an earlier golden age. Legal literature has not fared well in this rendering of intellectual history. Uh, Western scholars have frequently identified the waning creativity of the medieval period with the fetish of law. The argument follows that as Muslim legal schools solidified around their interpretations revelation, jurists sought to define the positions of each community. Each generation clarified and added to the opinions of the previous, producing a vast collection of legal opinions too unwieldy for all but the most advanced legal expert. Jurists <clears throat> responded by gathering what they considered the most central of the school's views into short teaching manuals and abridgments, these often in turn generating lengthy commentaries by later scholars. Students memorized passages from the texts with little thought of their meaning, while scholars devoted themselves to obscure glosses and legal issues. <clears throat> this furu al-fiqh genre came to typify a medieval Islamic curriculum that replaced freedom for a solipsism, producing a dry, lifeless textual Islam, often alleged of the medieval period. The Muhtasar Khalil is perhaps the finest example of this genre, a medieval work of ritual law, a teaching text, and the object of many hundreds of commentaries, it is arguably the most famous of three of the Academy's least appreciated genres of Islamic scholarship. To the degree that it figures in discussion at all, the Khalil has become synonymous with the worst, least complicated rendering of pre-modern Islam. It adds little and seems to aspire to even less. Reducing Islamic scholarship to a derivative, endlessly reproduced collection of rules and prohibitions. This understanding of the book as a model for regressive scholarship seems a poor fit for the Khalil of Mauritania and that recounted by Lakani and Baba. This paper seeks to resolve the, dis the disconnect between these two narratives, <clears throat> the Khalil's rendering of Western academic sources with its construction in Islamic scholarship. Rather than contemplate why such a gulf exists, undoubtedly there is an answer more complicated than the one that I've offered above, I would instead prefer to rehabilitate the Khalil as a viable object of scholarly inquiry. Not simply understudied, my intention is to show, that, <clears throat> to show precisely the intellectual dynamism characteristically dismissed of the intellectual discipline, furu, the literary genre, uh, abridgment and commentary, and the period that is a, it is a part of. I'd also like to argue that disregarding as marginal disciplines, practices, and beliefs that have been central to the intellectual production of Muslims is not a tenable approach for the future of Islamic studies in the West. This is a concern that African <coughs> studies has been far more sensitive to, and an area where those working on Islam in Africa can hopefully lead the way in finding more dynamic ways of contemplating Islam. <coughs> Khalil, uh, Khalil ibn Ishaq, died 1365, was born to a military family outside of Cairo. Though details of his life are spotty, as a young man, Ishaq uh, accompanied his former Hanafi-turned-Maliki father to the lectures of uh, Abdullah al-Manufi, died 1348 eventually receiving teaching licenses from the latter in Maliki law. Upon returning from a time teaching in Medina, Khalil uh, began teaching nearby at the Madrasa al-Sheikhuniya. As his reputation grew, stories abounded of an extraordinary scholar dressed in the tattered clothes of a soldier. His self-discipline was legendary among colleagues. A lifetime Kyrenian, uh, Khalil was reputed for uh, avoiding ever having seen the city's ubiquitous, ubiquitous Nile, instead walking each day to the Sheikhuniya before returning directly home to write until uh, very early in the morning. 
Another story had it that he once visited the home of a sheikh, only to find <coughs> that the sheikh had left hours earlier in search of someone to clean an especially dirty bathroom. Shocked that the sheikh's students had allowed uh, their teacher to venture through the city asking for house cleaning help, Khalil walked to the bathroom and began immediately cleaning the sheikh's washroom with his bare hands. Before his death in 1365, he would complete seven texts, two of them in law. The first, a six-volume commentary of the legal manual of Egyptian jurist uh, Uthman ibn uh, Hajib, died 1248, uh, more than established his reputation among scholars of his day. He had the second, a much shorter manual titled in his own name, cemented Khalil among the seminal figures of Maliki law. <clears throat> 25 years in the making, the Muhtasar Khalil uh, drew from thousands of legal opinions, stretching back to the, Mal uh, the Maliki school's founder, Malik ibn Anas, died 795. Khalil graded each view before distilling the school's authoritative rulings into maddeningly short prose. Explaining the process in his introduction, Khalil wrote, a group of students asked of me an abridgment of the legal school of Malik ibn Anas that explained the school's positions through its fatwas. His intention in doing so was to present something like a consensus of the school, of course a political project in its founding, <clears throat> highlighting what he considered the most compelling views of an issue while avoiding questions that remained controversial. <clears throat> he relied not on works of fiqh, but largely on hadith and sifting through these opinions. Almost all were commentaries of Ibn Sahnun's al Mudawana, died uh, 854, uh, a compendium of sayings attributed to the legal, school, uh, legal school's founder, Malik ibn Anas. Uh, in his opening, Khalil cites the work of four scholars in particular. Uh, the Tafsira of Qairawan's Abu Hassan al Lahmi, died 1086. Uh, Sharh al Talqeen of Muhammad al Mazari, died 1141 of Tunisia. And al Jami' li Musa'il al Mudawana wa al Mukhtarata of Andalusi Muhammad ibn Yunus, died 1059. And Al Muqaddima wa Al Mumahadat and Al Bayan wa Tahsil of Ibn Rushd the Elder died 1063, also of the Andalus. To maximize the number of legal positions in the fewest words possible, Khalil created a, a series of coded reference in which he assigned to each author a word meant to designate their position. Opinions held in the Mudawana's primary text were reduced to a single preposition and pronoun, fiha. <coughs> Disputes over the Mudawana were condensed into uh, any variety of the passive uwila. And the position of one of the four relied upon authors was divided by its nounal and verbal forms of al-ikhtiyar, the distinction meant to separate novel opinions from ones selected from among, among other experts. That Khalil succeeded in reducing the Muqtasar genre to its most elemental level understates just how complex a legal discourse he managed to build under the surface of each line. <clears throat> the, book is said, uh, the book is said to fit 100,000 legal issues and some 250 pages considerably larger than the 4,000 estimated of the work to which Khalil is often compared, uh, Abu Zayda Karwani died 996, the Risala. Reflecting on the achievement, the Mauritanian scholar Sidi Muhammad bin Fadl al-Sharif, died 1708, uh, concluded there is no legal issue and no legal ruling not derived from the text or its implied meaning of Muhtasar Khalil. <clears throat> the Khalil's significance was not just a question of volume. Despite its range, the text represents a shift in legal literature fundamentally different from earlier works. Comparing the manual's treatment of ritual purity with that of canonical texts of the Maliki school is instructive. The Risala of 10th century Abu Zayd al-Qarwani treats the Tahara in terms different from the other texts. Its concern is establishing the obligation for purifying oneself before performing specific actions, in this case, ablutions before prayer. Here we see the lines, al-musalli yunaji rabbuhu fa'alayna an yata'ahab bidhalaka bilwudhu and Though making the case for purification before prayer was defined long before Qaywani, the context, both legal and political, was indeed very different. 
The Maliki school was still a relatively young one in the Maghreb. At the time of his writing, the community had yet to develop a well-defined literary genre of furu, nor was, it, nor was it laboring under the weight of five plus centuries of disparate legal views, as it was with Khalil. Written some 100 years later, the Tawqeen of uh, Iraqi Abdul Wahab al-Baghdadi uh, already displays several of the conventions of ritual law teaching manuals. The injunction for purification, a statement largely presumed and dropped in later fiqh works, is followed by an explanation how the reader would perform such an act. The practice is divided into component parts, each classified and broken down into a numbered list of conditions. Tahara is divided into thalatha and wa, wudu into thamani and mawadi, and fada'il into three types. Uh, the language is plain and schematically presented, contrary to the convention that texts of ritual law were designed primarily for memorization. Um, I unfortunately am going to have to skip ahead uh, past Ibn Arafah and get to the point of the conclusion. We're running out of, running out of time. Um, uh, so we'll just go right to the conclusion. Um, <clears throat> if the Khalil's contribu contribution to the genre was indeed unique, it seems fair to ask why. Comparing Khalil with three other noted works of Maliki law does not simply imply that the group shared a single audience or aim. They most certainly did not. The books reflected the varying historical and political milieus of their authors on the one hand, and the varying stages of development of the legal school and literary genre that they were a part on the other. Each work was inescapably the product of its time and place, <clears throat> yet comparing the, contact of the content of the texts themselves revealed the unique disciplinary ground broken by the Khalil. It was not merely reproduction of earlier thick texts. Its range, brevity, and style separated it from previ previous works of the genre. The book's feat was not in the number of sources it gathered, but in judging the persuasiveness of their opinions on legal questions. Khalil condensed those views by managing to write uh, the arguments into his pages rather than onto them folding thousands of legal debates into a stream of prepositions and pronouns. As importantly, very last two paragraphs, second. Uh, as importantly, Khalil's reception by Muslim scholars and communities themselves distinguishes the book from any other in Maliki Furu. The accounts of Laqani and Baba, disconcerted as they were at the manual's predominance, are helpful examples. They describe a Khalil that by at least the 16th century functioned as a type of discourse unto itself. The book enjoyed a symbolic resonance that far outstripped comparative works, and I think ritual law more broadly. Though talking about the law meant in much of Maliki Africa, referring in some way to the Khalil, the book also served as a shorthand for talking about a variety of non-legal issues. Status, agency, discipline, even piety were reformulated through invoking the Khalil in everyday life. Young men achieved adulthood once they finished the book. Others rejected the same expectation by committing decades to it. Arrogance was cut down to size by mastering its language. The preternatural imbibed the text in mere months, while the truly miraculous spoke to Khalil and his commentators as they slept. A favorite Sudanese scholar was described by his students as once being di diagnosed with a terminal illness. The night of his diagnosis, the scholar was visited by the prophet himself in a vision, who agreed to let the man live on one condition, that he teach the Khalil daily. The stories tell the Khalil that was inhabited as much as it was read. Rather than solely an object of legal debate, these discursive aspects of the text are among the most exciting, I think, for future research. <clears throat> they also seem sufficient antidotes to stereotypes most commonly associated with the book. Discovery in the Khalil of a space for contestation and meaning by Muslim scholars for better than 600 years suggests a need to reassess our assumptions about law, textuality, and Africa. That we have failed to do so thus far points to the failure not of the scholars that we have largely disregarded, but of the imagination of the Western Academy. To draw upon the theme of this conference, the case of the Khalil argues that we need to look harder, more creatively, and more sensitively to the intellectual dynamism of scholarship in Islamic Africa than we all have previously. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, all right, Ustaz Matthew, very nice. Um, you demonstrate the importance, of course, of uh, in, an internal understanding of texts, um, of actually reading them with 
with teachers that can unravel for us the, the codes that are, are implicit. And I, I think um, you're, you're going to be doing some, some work that hasn't been, been done before. Um, and you also are pointing towards the end there to the importance of uh, the performance of the text. Um, which I think, it, um, if you intersperse that a little bit throughout your narrative, would would make it uh, much more readable. Okay. Yeah, because you know these these codes, fiha, etc., yes. might lose lots of us. But uh, this is an incredible work, and keep up the good work. Well, I just wanted to give some brief um, uh, thoughts uh, on how to to work these sort of papers together. Um, I think you agree with me that they're very uh, interesting and in, in opening up new vistas. Um, but also demonstrating some constraints of how we understand Islamic legal practice in African historical contexts. Uh, for the first paper, uh, Professor Terim, Terim sorry, um, on, on, you know, demonstrating, as we said earlier, the continued viability of, of the Maliki tradition um, as, as, a as a system of common law, the use of, of, of precedent. Uh, but one of the constraints, obviously, being that this tradition, it really depend, depends upon the continued production of uh, scholarly exemplars that can carry it forward. And uh, I, I was wondering from you more about how Wazani um, situates himself within the Athanid networks, particularly um, from what I've seen from sitting in, in West Africa, uh, people like Abdul Hayal Katani, for example, are implicated in, in I think, in, in a sort of worldwide revival of the Athanid networks in the early 20th century. And I wonder if Wazani is um, informed by that or an inspiration to that um, in, in some way or another. Um, moving on to Professor Warscheid, um, you're you know, demonstrating um, the, the use of non-urban, uh, you know, as an opportunity for what we're understanding out of your paper, the, the use of non-urban understandings of Islamic law, uh, particularly with flexibility over concepts of political authority, um, and also a bit of adapti adaptability to gender relations, which you didn't um, talk too much about. You mentioned it in your, in your paper. I wondered if you could explain a little bit uh, uh, about that. Um, but you know, I, I, I wonder if this is still uh, a story then that is relegated to rural areas of, of, of the Islamic world, or does this, as it seems to be the case, that these articulations that are happening in rural contexts actually inform urban contexts as well, not just the other way around. And it seems you know, interesting that uh, Abdullah bin Bayah is one of the, the foremost articulators of, of Islamic law in the world today, who's from these sort of rural um, contexts. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Um, uh, the, op the opportunity of further understanding of Islamic law offered by Professor Tantawi's paper uh, really you know, demonstrates that the current politicization of the Sharia has uh, a colonial legacy um, and that we need not be, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily first done by Muslim intellectuals themselves. Um, you know, the constraint, of course, is reading colonialism as a sort of complete epistemic veil that descends upon Muslim societies and people can't sort of think outside. And I'm thinking of people like, uh, 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 the name is escaping, Sharif Saleh, Ibrahim Saleh, um, and, and uh, is a very influential uh, Islamic legal expert coming out of Nigeria. Um, you know, and, and in other words, and so locating agency of Muslim jurists, despite 
um, this epistemic violence um, of colonialism. Um, and for uh, Matthew, then, the, this, uh, the importance, then, of recognizing uh, clear textual references, you know, that it's been spoken about before, the veritable curriculum of Islamic learning in Africa, especially with Islamic law. Uh, and this is indeed a text that um, is often considered the PhD of the Maliki Fiqh curriculum, but yet it's so poorly understood. Um, so this is really doing a lot for us in Islamic intellectual history to understand this text. Um, but, um, you know, be, be, and as a way to segment into the, the, the challenge that the Khalil itself was sometimes seen as a constraint. And you remember that when Ahmed Baba makes this description about the supremacy of Khalil in the Maghreb, he's actually making a criticism of the Maghrebi scholars that he doesn't think that um, Khalil should have this uh, place and you should be able to look beyond um, Khalil. Um, so, you know, the challenge then is to look at Khalil um, in dialogue and continue dialogue with, with, with other texts in, in live practice. Um, you know, I, I would just sort of remind all of us sort of grappling with this very rich material on Islamic law in Africa, um, which is long overdue, a sort of return to this subject. Um, of, of, of you know key aspects, one of is of course the dialogue between texts and practice, um, and and a second thing is the continued um, proliferation of these networks. That even if we have a text that that only seems to be referring to Morocco, I mean Professor Tareem, you you mentioned the the presence of Ma'ainain and and some of your texts, and so it reminded me that um, these. Uh, especially black Africa is sort of a story that's been left out about how Muslim intellectuals, I mean, Ahmed Baba aside, have really informed, uh, been part of um, legal production in Africa and, and, and else, you know, in North Africa and in Egypt. And it's not only a uh, tradition, it's not only a story of, of them receiving this, this knowledge. Um, and um, yeah, and, and also, I mean, something reminded me of this story of the sukar qalib. Is it this processed sugar, right? So this also appears in the Sufi texts of uh, Shah Ahmad Jijani. So in the early 18, in 1800, Shah Ahmad Jijani then refuses to eat sugar because he says the makhalid be dumb. But he doesn't say the makhanzir is not pig blood per se. And one, some people have understood this is maybe is it mixed with the blood of slaves that um, died and, you know, the third of them died. Uh, to produce sugar. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. um, and the Katania uh, uh, yes. referred to the same case uh, during uh, yeah. the late uh, 19th century. Right, yeah. right. So, so, so this is, um, you know, an interesting story. It's not perhaps, so this is maybe predates colonial, the, the, the imposition of the colonial economy per se, although the transatlantic slave trade is certainly uh, a foundation for that. Um, but it does remind me of something else, which is that, um, Islamic legal traditions need to be read in dialogue with other um, Islamic disciplinary specializations. And you know, we, it, it, the same holds true for people studying Sufism or studying theology, that they need to pay attention to fiqh texts as, as well. That these texts are, are the, often these scholars are situated, they're using uh, Ibn Ashr to teach theology as well as fiqh, as well as Sufism. Um, and these scholars are, are situated very productively with, at the intersections of, of these different knowledge disciplines. So when you're looking at thick these, these legal texts, it's important to recognize them not only as legal texts, and many of you have uh, pointed to that already. Um, and you know, overall, 
the, the taking seriously of the agency of Islamic legal experts, um, despite whatever context they may be operating within, uh, uh, political, um, whether they have an, an over-imposing emir, whether they are completely marginalized from urban authorities, or whether they're operating within colonial contexts themselves, or whether they are operating under the authority of a particular text, that the, there is an enduring agency to the, to the production and the reactivation um, of these um, texts that need to be taken seriously. So uh, thank yeah. you very much. Does anyone want to respond, first of all, anything I've said? Or? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and just before I uh, I'll try to uh, respond to, to your comment, I also see um, a continuation or um, overlapping themes with uh, Dalia's paper from uh, the first panel. Um, so we talk about, um, about the texts versus the practice. We talked about uh, the different networks, Mail Ainen uh, in Morocco, uh, going back to your comment about, your paper about um, the presence of uh, um, Mauritanians in uh, Hejaz and Cairo, but also the fact that Islamic orthodoxy is um, um, defined through competition, um, is, um, is defined through a process of debate and conversation, and at time, uh, Islamic orthodoxy in your, as you showed in your case, uh, included uh, magic, and in other times it excluded magic. Um, so the same case goes with uh, with Wazeni and his new Ma'iyar and his attempt to uh, create a new orthodox, a new Maliki orthodoxy. Um, so back to your comment, um, he fully situated himself within uh, Maliki intellectual tradition. Um, and, and I think that it's very important um, to note that the new Ma'ayar did not assume the um, cultural meaning and the social role uh, that Wazani intended for, for his work. Um, before the protectorate, so just a reminder, it was published in 1910, two years before uh, the occupation, the French occupation. Before the protectorate, um, Islamic law was, at least theoretically, the law of the state. Under the protectorate, the uh, legal system underwent profound transformation. The French created uh, a dualistic system whereby the um, indigenous courts operated in parallel with um, courts modeled after those in, uh, in the European system. Um, within this legal pluralism, um, Islamic norms, Islamic law, Islamic courts presided over uh, family and inheritance matters. Um, uh, European bureaucracy oversaw the, works, the work of caddies. Um, the, Karawin the, the Karawin itself went through uh, a profound um, transformation and, and profound reform. The French bureaucracy um, was aware of the 
significant uh, social and political role of the ulema and sought to regulate the intellectual um, formation of this important group and to hinder the evolution of nationalist sentiments, the evolution of um, nationalist educational programs. So uh, the curriculum was uh, reformed. For example, um, subjects of study, texts, had to be approved by the state. The um, circle lessons were uh, regulated. The location of the lessons had to be regulated. Um, <coughs> teaching of unapproved text was punishable by the state. Um, what I'm saying is that Islamic knowledge uh, was transformed, Islamic, the production and the dissemination of Islamic knowledge was uh, transformed by uh, the French protectorate, making or transforming it from a fluid, um, a fluid education, fluid process of training to a very rigid one. Um, but it's interesting to note with all that, that in the 1920s, two texts that uh, Wazani authored were, were still taught um, at the Qarawin. Um, in general, I would like to emphasize that Islamic norms, Islamic knowledge um, were marginalized under the protectorate and texts such as uh, the new Ma'ayar were marginalized too. Hmm. Specifically, Wazani died um, 11 years after the protectorate in, in uh, 1923. Hmm. Um, maybe one last comment and then uh, we will move uh, we will move on. Um, also, my research in the archive, in the archives, um, is um, a point that I would like to highlight in terms of this neglect um, mm -hmm. of um, Islamic intellectual tradition, specifically fiqh. Um, everywhere that I mentioned uh, my subject, in every in every archive, I was shrugged off by librarians. Mm -hmm. Um, as something, something not really interesting to study, um, what there is to study uh, in the Nawazel, uh, in the new Me'ayar. The new Me'ayar and uh, El Wazani today in Morocco are still uh, perceived as um, um, a fixed body of knowledge. Um, that mimics the past, um, hostile to change. Um, there is nothing important, really, uh, to study in, in, uh, in the Nawazil um, and in, in, in such a compilation. All right, thank you very much. Yes. I, I know we only have 20 more minutes, yeah, yeah. so um, <laughs> let's field some questions. Yes, Karen. And so let's take these four questions first. Please, please stand up so everybody can hear and see you. Yes. Um, Katie Bolton from Kinney Graduate Center. Thank you so much for your rich uh, paper. My question pertains mostly to Sarah's work, um, but also relates to Jeffrey's comments and your comments with Pamela, I think. Um, I'm wondering, given the numerous calls for the re-implementation of Sharia in post-colonial states, um, to what extent is this understanding of Sharia as a codified, clear, and perhaps timeless legal code that could be implemented or not, uh, versus perhaps a more 
uh, understanding of it as a more fluid a process of creating law in a given situation or time or place. To what extent is this understanding rooted in colonial refashioning or codification of Islamic law under customary or customary law, customary code? Um, and then in particular, I'm wondering why do you think the emphasis on hudud as the like, primary indicator of whether or not Sharia has been implemented in the contemporary states? Yes, uh, Shafi? Uh, uh, thank you. My question to uh, Sarah. Uh, beyond the uh, prediction of law, uh, I think uh, the producer of knowledge is motivated by uh, the ethic of sciences, but also uh, by the way he uh, view the world. So I want to come back to Joseph Schachter, because it's a very important personality in producing Islamic knowledge in Europe in the age of colonialism and nationalism. Uh, he was a German. Uh, he left Germany when Hitler came to power. Although he was not Jew, he had a position as professor. He left Germany because he didn't want to work under the regime, repressive regime of Hitler, and he went to England. So uh, he uh, was working under a repressive regime, a colonial regime, yet not equivalent to the Nazi regime, but yet a repressive regime. So I wonder if you come close to a text written uh, by him where he is reflecting mm. his, uh, his uh, producing of knowledge and his uh, shift from Nazi Germany to colonial mm. uh, regime. Mm -hmm. I think you had a
We have one more question over here, Karen. Let's go. We'll let Matthew answer this, and then Sarah has lots of questions to answer, and we want to get some more. Go ahead. Great. Um, thank you very much for the, the, the question. Um, they're both uh, very, very good. I mean, I think to answer the, the second, well, the second and the first, um, I think that the Khalil has become sort of a, a, a metonym, a, a signifier um, for, like I tried to end the, the paper on, um, different issues of agency class, in this case race, uh, to be played out, especially in Mauritania. Um, because it's sort of grown, it's become uh, associated uh, with an idea or an ideal of um, Mauritanian traditionalism, um, a rigid sort of uh, doctrinal approach to, 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 to um, legal texts. Um, and so in that way, I think that the Khalil has functioned in, in different places and in different cases, and, and, and certainly in this one in Mauritania, um, as something less about the text. I certainly don't want to jettison um, it's, it, it's content um, related to, to slavery and race, um, but more for what it represents uh, around issues of uh, clericism, around class, around race, around the composition of the legal schools in which this text has been uh, traditionally taught in Mauritania. And then quickly, the, the first one, um, why it, it's become um, the, the kind of social symbol, right? The social, cultural, intellectual symbol in Mauritania um, versus other countries and also other texts. Um, I, I'm in, Inclined to take a very material history approach to it, right? Um, <clears throat> and think very closely around the, the, the particular sort of circulation uh, that the text had um, in Mauritania uh, and the particular uh, teachers that have all um, sort of extended uh, their, their uh, reputation in the country for many, many centuries um, through their very early and critical uh, commentaries, many versifications. Um, of the text, and so I think that there's something particular about kind of the time and place that it uh, hit, and hit uh, in a way that was taken on by very, very important scholars of the time, um, that I think has added sort of a, a historical um, position, positionality uh, of the text that's different than from the Rusal or the Tehfa or something like this. No, we can. Um, uh, I, I just would like to add to this, and with reference to uh, very, very quickly, uh, yeah. question, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, I don't know uh, of uh, burning copies of Mukhtasar uh, al-Khalil, but I can attest to the fact that um, during Al-Wazani's time, and so I'm talking about the last quarter of the 19th century, early 20th century, 
Mukhtasar al-Khalil was at the center of um, debate and, and conversations, um, abridgments of thick manuals, Mukhtasarat uh, in general, were um, subjects of heated debates about the decadence at the, at the center of the decadence of um, religious studies, ilm. As a, as, a, as a notion that focuses on uh, religious discipline, um, um, the recitation and memorization, the methods of instruction, um, um, all these um, um, unqualified uh, jurists that came out of the system, okay, um, were producing, according to this reformist um, discourse that I'm um, following um, during this time were producing um, weak and uh, erroneous fatwas. So <coughs> this decadence of um, um, religious studies led to a further crisis in Ifta. Um, so so this, was, this is not the first time that the Muhtasarat or Muhtasar al-Khalil are at the center of um, of heated debates. Um, right. And again, it goes back to the question of what is orthodoxy? What is included? What texts are included in, in uh, orthodoxy? Um, yeah. Great, thank you. Sarah, had punishments shot in yeah, colonial quickly, comparisons? Really yeah. quick. Um, Kathleen, is that your name? Katie. Katie, I'm sorry. Katie's questions. Okay. Um, so codified versus fluid is a very long story. And these are great questions, by the way. Um, so uh, I just have a few thoughts on that. You had two parts to your question. Just a few thoughts on the codified versus fluid. I mean, the, the codification, the, the move to codify, i.e. to write down Islamic legal codes, of course, is traceable to the colonial era. Um, but interestingly, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize that, I think, in keeping with something Zachary said, with, the, with indigenous knowledge and thought producers, you have, of course, scholars in Nigeria today who have maintained traditional forms of learning and who are extremely nuanced in their jurisprudential thinking. And so part of what I identified as the uh, kind of characteristic of the post-99 Sharia is precisely the, and I'm, I'm not the only one who's <laughs> noticed this, uh, Rude Peters for the European uh, Commission actually also talked about what he called the reductionism of the legal code. So there, there's a direct relationship between reducing the jurisprudential thinking to just a few bullet points to be put in these legal codes that were produced, as he puts it, virtually overnight. I think there's a clear relationship between that reductionism and the ease with which you can mete out punishments like the stoning punishment. Because one thing Schacht talks about is the fact that there were no recorded um, or known instances of meeting out the stoning punishment whatsoever in northern Nigeria and Hausaland. Um, but the British outlawed it anyway. Uh, so that's another story that we can take up. So the question about Hadood is a fascinating question. You know, what is it, and I love that question, what is it about Hadood that, that kind of symbolizes the seriousness of Islamic law and where does it come from? The earliest that I can clearly see that is in Uthman Danfodio's writing. Um, in his Iqamat al-Sunnah wa Ibadat al-Bid'ah, for example, um, he talks very explicitly about how Muslim societies that do not implement the hadood are not serious 
Muslim societies. And with the, with the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate and Dan Fodio's Jihad, um, I think you know, there, there was a clear embrace of Maliki law, there was a clear embrace of textual Islamic law, a clear embrace of the wider region and Arabia, Hajj, you know, um, Hajj to Arabia and learning coming back. So um, there's explicit talk of Hadud as being an important symbolic marker of seriousness. That does not mean it was practiced, and it wasn't, um, you know, with, with certainly nowhere to the degree to which it is now. Um, so I think that's certainly present in Don Fodio's writing in the early jihad period. In Nigeria, I certainly spoke to many people who talked about Hudud as um, important symbolically, but, but they would often talk about the, it, that at the end of the day, it's about tawkhif, right? The, the ability to scare people, um, a deterrent. But, um, you know, as basically, I don't think that people wanted to re-implement Sharia to stone peasant women to death for adultery. I think that they wanted to re-implement Sharia to scare governors who were ungovernable into not stealing money. That's really what I believe. <laughs> it's about poverty and corruption. So that, that is what I'll say for now on your questions. I'm sorry, you also said in your paper that yeah. the British had appropriated control over life and deaths, and you said today's Sharia proponents attempt to regain this control. I thought it was thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's exactly, that's a very important point, thank you, um, <laughs> that I once made, <laughs> which is, yeah, that, that the idea of, yes, that it's the symbolic, it's basically reclaiming, it's a way to reclaim sovereignty, mm -hmm. you know, because the idea, there's a lot of me present memory that, for example, you know, why outlaw the stoning punishment when we never stoned? What, what is, you know, and so it, it does seem as if there is a relationship between militarily claiming the territory and legally having control over life and death and the body. And so, therefore, if you want to regain that control, you need to start there. I think that was a big theme. Um, for Chanfi's wonderful point, I mean, I'm, I'm not a specialist on Shach. This is like a side point of a side point, as I kept trying to say. So I am not aware that he has reflected on that um, really interesting point, you know, that he left Nazi Germany and to, but, so I'm not aware of it. It could very well exist. I'm not sure, but I mean, I guess I would raise the point, you know, is that in keeping of the character of the, you know, the scholar, the objective scholar of Islamic law to write a memoir, let's say, reflecting on this in that period? Is that something that we would even tend to find? I, I'm not sure. I would question it. Uh, that seems more contemporary. So um, thank you for your suggestion to compare uh, this, a wonderful point, and I have not compared at all with East Africa, so thank you. Yeah. All right, time for one last question. Any, anything yeah. for Ismail? Yeah? Yeah. Maro, you have a question for Ismail? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. Western Sahara were actually contesting on the basis of, you know, the, the race. Mm. 
No, 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 not at all. And that's what is very impressing uh, when you read Al-Mami. You know, Al-Mami, this, his, his, this name, it comes from the kind of reference uh, to, to the, to the Al-Mami Abu Bakr in, in the Futaturo. Uh, so that's really something which is quite uh, personal. There is, he considers the Sahelan states as equivalent to the Sultanate of Morocco. He's quite clear on, on that. It's more where you find the traditional uh, Mauritanian social order. It's more in the conflict between the Banu Hassan and the Zwaya, because he is a part of a Zwaya tribe. And of course, all his arguments, legal arguments, in a way, also sustain a claim to political power from the Zawaya. So there are a lot of reference to the Shorbuba war, and but there's nothing between nothing with regard to the Bilat Sudan. We need to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry, we're out of time. We're going to continue this discussion over lunch, um, which is...